This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. In this episode, we're going to return to a topic that I looked at several months back in this podcast, and that is the harem. Specifically, I talked about the Ottoman Imperial Harem. This is a really fascinating topic for Europeans for centuries because no foreigners were allowed to enter it. And for a lot of people, they imagine it as basically the pre-modern version of the Playboy Mansion, where there's all sorts of licentiousness happening behind closed doors. But even though a sultan could have four wives and unlimited concubines, the harem wasn't the sensual fantasy land. It was more of an imperial cadet academy where foreign girls are turned into the wives of aristocrats and even future sultans, and there's all sorts of jockeying for power for women to become a concubine, maybe even a wife of a sultan, because if her son then becomes sultan, she can exercise enormous power. And there were, in fact, women who essentially ran the empire. To expand upon this topic, I'm speaking with University of Kansas professor Marie Grace Brown. Marie is a historian of the modern Middle East. She looks at the life of women in the Middle East. Specifically, she's studied Sudan in Khartoum, and she's the author of the book Khartoum at Night, Fashion and Body Politics in Imperial Sudan. We start by discussing the harem, which isn't just at the Istanbul Imperial Palace, but is more broadly defined to mean a female space. And she discusses what was it like for women in the Middle East as we enter into the modern period, where you have growing levels of education for women, civic participation, and the entering of women into public spaces, but you don't necessarily have westernization. So we talk about what's the difference between modernization and westernization, but we don't get too academic because at one point I asked Marie, let's say you're a female, you're transported to the pre-modern era in the Middle East. How would you take power? 
Would you work through the harem? Would you work through some other institution to become more powerful than a sultan? So Marie does a great job of getting to the depths of pretty academic ideas, but communicating them in a really engaging way, which a lot of people do not do well. So I enjoyed this discussion. I hope you do too. And look at the lives of women in schools, hospitals, parliaments, harems, and everything else you can imagine in the Middle East. Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Let's talk about something that is the greatest Orientalist fantasy of all. Writers of the 19th century love to talk about the harem. So would you please walk us through the harem? Maybe the Ottoman harem, which I've talked about before, or a Sudanese harem. If you're a cadet entering the harem, what is it like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first, perhaps to, to clarify the, um, the the fantasy that you're referring to, right, that appears in so much um, Western fiction and art, um, which is the harem as a place of exoticism, sensuality, sexual fulfillment, um, women as perhaps submissive or oppressed, um, living lives that are secluded only to serve um, the man of the household. Um, so that's that's the fantasy notion, right? But what we know in reality is that harem um, simply refers to the private quarters in a household, right? It is mm-hmm. where um, women spend most of their time, most of their lives, and um, children, both male and female, spend time in the harem. Um, and so right off the bat, right, um, that this is this is not necessarily a, a place of, of just sex, right? But it is, it is the family center. It is where decisions are made. It is where domestic politics plays out. Um, and and it is really sort of the heart of the home, um, and that's that's a, a generalized description, but that fits for much of the Middle East, um, for much um, of the eighteenth, uh, nineteenth, and early twentieth centuries. Um, in the Northern Sudan case, is um, slightly more different. It, it plays on those same notions as the harem being a secluded space. Um, but in Sudan, they also have um, a very uh, clear concept of enclosure, and so that um, and and it is organized as, as sort of concentric circles, and so that there is the um, harem at the center of the household that moves farther out to the house itself, moving out into the yard, to the neighborhood, to the town, um, and so. Uh, what what we sort of see that's happening in the early 20th century, which is where my research focuses on, is we see women steadily moving farther and farther out into these um, concentric circles, moving farther and farther outward. Um, what is unique and perhaps revolutionary about that is that this concept of enclosure or a harem system in Sudan is particularly conservative um, even up until the 1940s and 50s in comparison with its Middle East neighbors like Egypt so that you have um, strictures of the harem existing in northern Sudan far longer than you do in in other places in the Middle East. One thing that the Ottoman harem is famous for is all the political jockeying. Mm -hmm. People imagine when the harem is, it's basically like the Playboy Mansion with a Hugh Hefner as the sultan and the bunnies as the ladies. But, oh, no, no, no. In the Ottoman case, it's a soap opera of jockeying for power where if you 
you marry the sultan, bear his son, you become a wife. There are women who essentially ran the empire. Uh, in the Sudanese case or other cases that you've seen, is it like this as well, this uh, political jockeying? Um, absolutely, although it, it certainly also depends on what time period you're talking about. Um, so the political jockeying that, that you're referencing absolutely makes sense for um, sort of high classical Ottoman period um, up until the 18th century. What you begin to see um, in um, the Arab Middle East, which is what I'm more familiar with, is a turn to a um, more nuclear family at the end of the 19th century and into the earlier early 20th. And this is absolutely part of a larger modernizing project, part of a project um, to um, prove sort of equity with European Western standards of what a family looks like. Um, and so you you have less opportunity for um, political jockeying simply because you have less characters within this harem, right? So mm -hmm. you absolutely may have men um, with multiple wives, um, but that's becoming um, more and more uncommon. And so the harem by the uh, 20th century as it exists, right, is housing um, – smaller numbers of people who um and 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 because of that their interests um perhaps align a little bit more than um than the 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 sort of soap opera quality right. um that drives so much of Ottoman history. Hmm. Well, that's interesting if you have a country where polygamy is still allowed, you can still have multiple wives, but it's still moving toward a nuclear family model. Why would it move toward that model when they're not accepting, you know, Western laws on marriage and monogamy and things like that? Sure. Um, so having multiple wives <laughs> is expensive, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so um, certainly even in the Ottoman case, right, it is mm -hmm. it is only the most elite that can have these like sort of large cadres, right, yeah, large cadres of women. Um, so part of um, – and I, I wouldn't say – so there, there is on the one hand, right? This this move to modeling um, family life or nuclear family life on this new notion um, that the nuclear family is the civilized family; it is the modern family um, that aligns with um, beliefs in uh, child rearing and nationalism and citizenship. Huh. So that um, strong families, uh, well. Let me back up. Strong nations are made of strong families, and strong families um, arise from mothers who can pay careful attention to um, their children. So you should have a smaller number of children rather than a larger number. Um, this go um, you follow this sort of thread back um, so that you have uh, programs for girls' education, so that educated girls become educated wives and most importantly become educated mothers um, to raise strong citizens for this strong nation. So this, um, this adoption of this new family structure, um, you're absolutely right, does seem like it, it's sort of all about westernizing and, and thus is in conflict with um, a resistance to adopting other kinds of Western laws or Western morals. But if you put it in the larger context of... Um, not westernizing, but modernizing, and the notion that mm -hmm. a modern right. family and a modern state are absolutely linked, um, 
then you you can sort of hold both of those things at the same time. So traditional um, Islamic uh, values, lives that are guided by um, largely by religious law, um, but and have that apply to a new smaller family structure. Yeah, that's a big issue of modernization without westernization. Absolutely. And I won't bore our <laughs> listeners with the billions of pages on this on the historiography in the Middle East, but... Uh, could you talk about that and uh, something you mentioned earlier about the widening uh, concentric circles mm-hmm. of women in Sudan? What what does that process look like? And could you uh, also touch on the modernization without westernization? Right. Absolutely. So an example would be something like girls' education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that um, in uh, – Northern Sudan, and I should clarify for listeners um, that we're using Sudan, it's a shorthand, but my expertise is on um, the northern portion, which is predominantly um, Arab and Muslim. And so that's what I'm referring to. Um, That within northern Sudan at the turn of the 20th century, there is very little formal education for girls. Um, The British come in and conquer Sudan in 1898 and begin to establish um, educational programs for young girls. And um, and, and so, and and part of my own research is on bodies and how bodies move and how um, the imperial experience is a physical experience. And so as an example of this, for the first time, girls are expanding those concentric circles, right? And walking from the house um, to their school um, often unaccompanied, um, so that's very big, um, that this takes them away from their chores within the home. Um, and and because these are um, British schools that they're going to and be, and taught by British women, you know, propriety and modesty are incredibly important. And so these young girls have to dress in an appropriate way. Um, and so there are, um, they begin to adopt a, a a large uh, outer wrapper called a tobe. Um, if you imagine an, a, a sari like women wear in India, this is very similar. It's a large rectangular cloth um, that women wrap around themselves. Um, and the tobe had primarily been a garment for married women, but now you get young unmarried schoolgirls wrapping this garment around them mm. simply so that they can go to school. Um, the school also then teaches sewing um, as well as hygiene and reading and writing and arithmetic. And so these young girls become, you know, quite literally shaped and molded in in an image of um, uh, sort of European standards of civility, modesty, cleanliness, certainly. Um, but what was interesting in the Sudan case, which is unlike other cases in the British Empire, um, there were a number of sort of political diplomatic agreements that went on. And so religion is not taught in these government schools, whether Christianity or um, Islam. And there's also, um, again, in northern Sudan, very few missionary schools. There are some, mm-hmm. but very few. And so this is an entirely what we would refer to as secular education for these girls. Um, and so they are moving beyond the boundaries of their homes they're dressed in new ways. Their face is washed in in sort of new ways. Their bodies are moving in new ways. Um, and yet there has been no threat to them as Muslim women, right, or no challenge to their status as Muslim women. 
I'm guessing these would be mostly the daughters of elites. Um, it it is the daughters of elites, but the the education program um, expands relatively rapidly, and um, and there's sort of a hierarchy for how girls get chosen, um, and it is certainly elites. But once that happens, then you move down to um, sisters of people that have been um, in the school. Um, then to, uh, oh, now, now it's escaping me. Um, elites, siblings, something else that I can't remember. And, and then by age, right? Um, and, um, and one sort of interesting anecdote is that, um, you know, almost none of these girls have birth certificates or any sort of, um, documentation that would match British bureaucratic standards to prove age. Um, and so a girl's age was judged by um, how many adult teeth she had in her mouth. Um, and Pretty inexact <laughs> science there. Yeah. It is a very inexact <laughs> science. Um, but, but parents were aware of this, and parents were actually quite eager to have their daughters enrolled in school and would lie about their child's age, either yeah. up or down, depending on where there were I, slots. I, I could see ways to try to, I don't know, dentures or were there ways to try to goose the system? Well, and I, nothing that elaborate, okay. but, but, you know, insisting that your seven-year-old daughter was in fact five or the other way because um, education was so, was in fact quite valued. And so getting your daughters into the system any way possible um, was was very important. So if I understand correctly that the education, it being secular, it didn't threaten, I, I guess, their Islamic identity. And this is the modernization you're talking about without westernization. Uh, so how else are um, does gender identity change uh, in Sudan getting into the 20th century with education? How does that affect uh, women once they grow up, maybe they have a career, they return to home life, but now they're educated in a way their mothers weren't. So mm -hmm. how, how does this also affect gender relations? Right. And so this gets back to our notion of the concentric circles and women moving out. Um, so there there is, right, this movement of uh, girls leaving the home, becoming educated, uh, returning to the home, and then um, becoming wives and um and, you know, the fears that they lose whatever education they've gained. Um, but but what what is also happening, right, is an, a sort of a flexibility or an opening up for women to um, take part in public space. And so you have girls growing up becoming teachers themselves, becoming nurses, midwives, um, in the 1940s, there is a very strong um, women's activist movement, which is incredible if you think that the first schools for girls um, didn't begin until the 1920s. So you have in sort of the span of just a little under a generation, um, uh, a, a group of young women who feel um, confident enough right, to sort of... Um, um, claim a space for themselves in public, right? And then, um, and and not only just sort of claiming sort of their rights to, to walk through the streets, um, but then to also say things like, uh, to make political claims, right? So 
claims for um, representation in um, legislature, uh, the right to vote, the right to run for office, um, the right to maternity leave, the right Mm -hmm. to equal pay for equal work, right? All of these are um, demands made by some women activist groups in the 1940s and 50s. And so um, this changes gender relations in that now women are envisioning places for themselves and roles for themselves, not just in the home, um, but in the larger body politic, and then also the government, the nation, the state. Hmm. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's interesting to see also in different Muslim countries rights women do and don't have. It's not as if Sharia is this one-size-fits-all package that mm-hmm. women can have tremendous freedom in one domain but much less, and then the situation is flipped in other countries. Um so, for example, in Sudan today, uh, I, I guess we'll talk about North Sudan. Mm-hmm. Is polygamy still legal there? Um, I believe so. Um, yeah, I, I mm-hmm. believe so. And I, I think what's important to certainly Sudan, um, the government of northern Sudan operates um, along a version of Sharia law. But I think what's important um, to sort of create a distinction is that um, Islamic law is is one thing, right? But that has overlaid um, a, a a particular culture too, right? Mm-hmm. And so what is often categorized as um, oh, this is this is a religious law um, is 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 sort of a, a, a sloppy association, right? Because um, Religious law is applied by humans at particular moments in very specific Mm -hmm. social and um, economic, political, historical situations. So the um, Islamic culture that exists in northern Sudan is um, a descendant or is inherited of a very particular stringent um, Islamic movement of the late 19th century. And so... It is coming out of that. So, so Sudan today in the 21st century is, um, is is sort of the descendant of a particular historical moment in which um, Islamic law um, was applied with pretty rigorous standards. With uh, ways that you talked about women's movements and education, when most people hear that, they would imagine a fundamental clash with Islamic law, mm-hmm. like you just described. But uh, as you know, we've read in a lot of places, it's much more complicated. Sometimes there's conflict, sometimes mm-hmm. they support each other. So the discourse of what we would call 
modern things in Sudan, education, other things that you mentioned, is it understood by the people who practice them? Do they add a, a Islamic coding to it and call it Islamic? Or do they recognize that the source might have been British and um, or do they try to negate that source? How do, how do they come to terms with things that um, are modern and Islamic? Do they just make it all Islamic or... Yeah, and I, I think the the um, um, so what I don't see is, um, and and this is sort of a ridiculous example, but um, people saying, "Oh, this is an Islamic radio," or mm-hmm. "This is um, an an Islamic novel," or something like that, right? So these sort of cultural exchanges that come along with education um, are adopted and accepted, um, and and the the caution is sort of really on. Um, how should one use them, right? And um, what sort of what um, is appropriate to be spread? So we think that um, one of one of perhaps the clearest examples, thinking again about women and gender, is changing notions of beauty and fashion, which is again mm-hmm. what a lot of my research focuses on. Um, and in the um, women's magazines that I. Uh, studied, uh, again, pulling from the 1950s and early into the early 1960s, there's a lot of talk about um, changing beauty standards and Hollywood starlets. Um, there's one of my favorite um, uh, cartoons that appears in a magazine is of a uh, one woman spies another walking down the street. And the woman walking down the street is in a tight mini dress and high heels. Um, so the, the protagonist decides she also wants to wear high heels and she buys herself a pair and promptly trips and falls <laughs> over. Um, and so the message of that, obviously, um, is that beauty comes not from high heels, but from something else. Um, but but um, but there there is no language that says, oh, you have to putting aside the more radical outliers, right? That the mainstream mm-hmm. language is not saying, oh, we have to ignore Hollywood completely or, oh, all Western beauty standards are terrible and should be ignored. Um, it's really about moderation and finding a balance and finding sort of what is beautiful and elegant within oneself. Um, and and so sometimes that means... Um, doing things in a more quote-unquote traditional way. And sometimes that means um, uh, uh, you know, a- a- adapting what, what's sort of new and coming in, in within, again, sort of a, a, a Sudanese culture. Um, and and, and I, should, uh, I should note, right, that it's not just women that are responding to these things too, right? At, in fact, at the forefront of all of this is Sudanese men who... Um, are educated um, to a greater extent than Sudanese women, um, are educated earlier than Sudanese women are. And so the sort of the first line of all of these notions about what beauty looks like, um, romantic notions of love and companionship and new forms of marriage, all of that actually comes um, through men first who are reading novels, seeing foreign films, reading essays, perhaps traveling to the West and then returning home. Um, so you actually also um, see men beginning to demand uh, a women, and this is um, 
I'm paraphrasing a quote here, right? But but women who look like Greta Garbo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that, you know, changing gender norms um, are really the result of men and women working together to define uh, what's authentic, what's new, what's beautiful, um, what's not allowed. You mentioned something interesting before we uh, started recording that in your teaching, you try to help students see things that appear to be foreign or different in the Middle East aren't as different as we think. And the terms that we're using here, we talk about Sharia, we're talking about uh, polygamy to a casual, casual listener. When they hear Sharia and think about the rights of women, they think of the Taliban or ISIS mm-hmm. or uh, Wahhabism that, well, how how are those two things even in the same galaxy? But how would you go about teaching when you talk about how things aren't as different as we would assume in the Middle East when we're looking at issues of um, women's rights, even uh, in a country where Sharia is practiced? And and you mentioned that it's not a monolithic term, mm-hmm. but how do you go about explaining that? Right. And I think, well, one of the things to do is to, um, that I try and do is remind my students that the people that we are studying are humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they are motivated by the same sort of base desires, um, power, sex, money, um, love, legacy. Um, they can be irrational, right? Just like mm-hmm. we are sometimes. So students often ask, well, why did they do this? Or what is that decision? And Sometimes the answer is they're they're human. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the other thing that I try and do is present some of these larger movements. Um, so let's say um, again, recognizing that things like uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda are absolute outliers. Um, but let's say a general turn to Islamic conservatism, which has happened throughout the Middle East, um, starting in the 1990s. Um, to sort of ask, well, what problems um, are these populations facing? Um, what solutions have been proposed that haven't provided answers? Um, and those solutions are um, wrapped up in sort of corrupt government systems, capitalism that hasn't worked, communism that hasn't worked. Um, and so how might religion then provide another answer to questions about um, or, or to frustrations about, I don't feel like my government responds to me or hears me. I don't feel like my government um, treats me or my neighbors or my community fairly. I've gotten an education, but I can't find a job. And so I'm hungry. Um, my I have trouble getting a permit to build a house. And without a house, I can't get a wife. I can't have children. Right. So there's this sort of permanent adolescence. Um, All of those, right, are are frustrations that we can all sort of identify with. Right. Economic Mm -hmm. frustrations, um, personal and social frustrations and challenges. And then to um, and then and and once we've established that, we can say, well, now what does um, religion um, offer as a solution? And, And Islam is. Um, unique among the Abrahamic religions in that it comes sort of built into it um, a political system as well, right? And so um, is Islam sort of already has a lot of these answers for what should the tax rate be or what do you do, you know, when um, when you encounter orphans, right? So these kinds of things 
um, Islam sort of already provides those answers um, in a way that Christianity and Judaism in their sacred texts don't necessarily. Um, and and so I, so I guess I think that that's part of how I attempt to humanize things. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle because the way that the media talks about the Middle East and Islam, um, not even in 2017, but, you know, we can go back to 2001, 2002, um, is, is so isolating and distancing. Um, I believe I'm trying to remember um, the, the event that prompted Newsweek to run um, a cover that was called Muslim Rage. Um, I don't think it was related to the Arab Spring, um, but it must have been some other Yeah, uprising. it was the one, the roots of Muslim rage, something yeah, like and that. So yeah, and so the cover was just a bunch of brown bearded men shaking their fists in the midst of yelling. Um, and, and that was, and, and, and the, the, the article, right, was that Muslim rage was a foregone conclusion, right, that there was always that Muslims are always angry, right? And that mm-hmm. Muslim men are always dangerous. Um, and in response to that, a lot of Muslims um, worldwide, but but definitely um, in the United States and Europe, um, started tweeting um, uh, funny responses with the hashtag Muslim rage. So... Um, you know, oh, right. one yeah. of them was my falafel is overcooked. Muslim yeah, rage, yeah, her, right. Or um, one night stand and my date only has bacon for breakfast. Muslim <laughs> rage, right? So all of these things that were just about, um, um, again, sort of humanizing or sort of recognizing that the people um, that that these are people, right? That these aren't others. Getting back to this notion of the exotic harem, right? Mm-hmm. These aren't. Um, people living in a picture or a film, um, but that they're facing the same daily struggles um, that we are. Yeah. And in terms of Islam's engagement with modernity, when I talked with my class about fatwas, it seems like newer fatwas, two thirds of them have to do with smartphones mm-hmm. of, can I read the Quran on a smartphone? Can it just goes on endlessly. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, and, and so Islam, um, and like many religions, but Islam certainly is is incredibly adaptive. So um, Hassan Obana, who is the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, so he founds the Muslim Brotherhood in 1938, and he lists um, a sort of a, and, and his idea is to turn um, Egypt, which has not been working very well as um, as a sort of as a constitutional monarchy, um, into a fully religious state, one that better um, follows religious laws, um, and but he's absolutely engaging with this question of modernity, and so um, he does answer questions about um, what kinds of things should be broadcast on a radio um, or. Um, how should men and women mix in cinemas or cafes? Um, he also has sort of a large socialist bent too, and so has um, instructions for um, workers' rights and mandatory vacations and things like that. So that there's there's actually been sort of a history, right, of 
um, Islamic political thinkers attempting to um, uh, adapt Islam, right, for this modern age and and to make it um, relevant and, and sort of flexible. When you were in Sudan from uh, 2010 to 2012, were were doing field research and talking with women and many others there. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything that sticks out from uh, your encounters with people that uh, highlight some of these things we're discussing? Um. Well, so uh, yeah, um, I'll 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 say a few things. And one sort of corrective: I was I was not there for two years, which would have been amazing. So I was there <laughs> in 2010, and then again okay. in 2012. Um, so, uh, I think one of the things, um, that I had to encounter sort of thinking about, um, gender was, so, you know, I am a strong, independent, American, brash woman capable of doing everything or used, used to doing everything myself, right? And getting used to in Sudan to per, um, that a woman of my social status would not just be sort of boldly striding mm-hmm. <laughs> down the street to get wherever she needed to go. Um, and so getting used to having um, uh, drivers, so either hiring cabs or people that I was meeting with would, um, you know, say, well, oh, you know, take my driver home. Um, I got used to, um, there was a, a man who who had one of the better cabs that, and he sort of always positioned himself right outside my apartment um, because he knew he could overcharge me um, and, and and things like that. Oh, and it was fine, absolutely fine. But um, one day he was um, on the drive and, and he was saying that he was going to turn on the air conditioning um, with, with the, the nod that this would cost me more. And and I was saying, you know, oh, I don't, I don't need the air conditioning. And he said, but absolutely. He said, a, a woman like you going to an important meeting, um, you need air conditioning. You can't show up sweaty and disheveled. And he was absolutely right. I mean, he mm-hmm. was um, that for what I was attempting to do, and for um, the uh, person that I was sort of trying to portray, um, a woman of my stature would not show up sweaty. She would absolutely. Um, pay for air conditioning. So, so things like that in, in that, um, I had to learn sort of how to adjust, um, my body to, um, their norms. Um, and in, in meaning that, um, that, that my body was something that needed to be protected, right. Hmm. And taken care of. And I wasn't used to that. Um, I'll tell another story since I'm thinking about drivers. So, um, I, um, met and became friendly with um, sort of a, a very lovely family of a economics professor at the University of Khartoum. And so I would um, often go over to his house for a meal. And so he would have his um, son, his young teenage son, then drive me home. And um, his son had, um, I guess I don't even know what he was playing, but but he had um, he had Adele's latest album is mm-hmm. is the point of this story, and so um, in in sort of that twenty minute ride home, um, this young man who I didn't know very well, and he certainly didn't know me, um, we just sang Adele <laughs> um, 
on the rides home and it was great. It was lovely. Um, and it was this sort of nice moment of international connection. And yeah, Globalization for people when they first travel abroad, it's baffling the yeah. things that people are into. Someone I knew who is very, uh, one of the most uh, fundamentally religious people I knew in Turkey was a huge fan of all the Ernest movies. Mm -hmm. Ernest goes to camp, Ernest goes to jail. And yeah. Um, so I would like to do a thought experiment. Um, I always, I like to do this with a guest. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And um, one who is a medievalist, I asked him, how would you kick off the modern age? And his answer was to um, start contract law and I think bring potatoes from the okay. new world. So here's my thought experiment for you. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're in, um, you could choose the Ottoman Empire, Sudan at some point. Uh, it's in a uh, pre-modern era. And we talked at the top of this podcast how there were certain uh, women who basically ran the empire sure. uh, through the harem. Let's say you want to take power in your state. How would you go about doing that? Would you move through the harem? Would you move through some other institution so in terms of women working through society in, you know, sometimes formal or informal channels or using those channels to assert themselves, how would you become the most powerful person? And maybe you're not the sultan in name, but, you know. For Am I a woman in this? Yeah, in this scenario, okay. you're a woman. So <laughs> how do you take power? Um, well, I don't, I don't think my answer is, is novel in any way in that um, you uh, – you marry strategically, um, and then you um, birth child, ideally a son, right, and and position him in an appropriate way, right. Um, and the Ottoman Empire that often requires killing off competitors, right, mm -hmm. male and female. Um, and you know, birthing a daughter, you have a few more steps to get to the center of power, right, because then she has to marry well, also, or become a sexual partner. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm. It's. I, I think there is. The I, I think that the the lesson right is is not that that sex is important and that power power travels through sex, which is true, right? But that thinking about domestic space as the space in which um, all sorts of political strings are pulled and maneuvered, right? And and this is why I think um, gender is such an important um, category of analysis for historians, right? And and expanding beyond that to think about to looking at as families as households of historical analysis, um, because this these lines that we've drawn between public space and private space don't exist for the people who live them, right? You have a bad day at work and then you come home and. Um, whatever ha is happening at home either soothes what's going on or exacerbates it, right? And so I think that we, um, that that women's power, right, is through the family. And, and the tragedy um, or the difficulties come when uh, you, women can't have children, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the ways then becomes sort of much harder when family is valued and legacy is valued and inheritance is valued um, to uh, to insert yourself into that power node if you are a woman. Um, and I'll also say for the benefits of your listeners, right, that I am a woman of color. 
Um, and so at any given historical moment, uh, women of color would have also had larger disadvantages um, and greater challenges to sort of move your way into the center of power. Yeah, we've started in the home, moved outwards, and then came back in a very large circle that wraps up the entire <laughs> Middle East. Uh, so if people want to read more about the research you have done, uh, what is the name of your book? Right, wonderful. So my book just came out. It is called Khartoum at Night, Fashion and Body Politics in Imperial Sudan. And I will say that it is absolutely written for the educated lay reader. Okay, so not chapters of historiography no, and zero, yeah, zero of them. Fantastic, <laughs> great, and I'll link to that in the show notes if people want to check it out. Marie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. Well, that was the interview with Marie Grace Brown. Again, if you'd like to check out her book, Cartoon at Night, I have a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at historyunpluggedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. You can do that by going to historyonthenet.com forward slash subscribe. Speaking of History on the Net, if you want to dive deeper, go to our site historyonthenet.com and there you'll find blog posts, book reviews, and all of our other podcast episodes. Plus, don't forget to rate and review this podcast so we can bring you the best daily history content possible. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and you'll get a link to this special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.